I thought this was interesting on This American Life. Uh, John Hodgman once asked a group of people, uh, if you could choose, which superpower would you have? Flying or invisibility, right? Think about that for a second. Flying or invisibility. One woman chooses invisibility. She says, I, I'd, go to, I'd go into Barney's. I'd pick out the cashmere sweaters that I like. I'd go to the dressing room. Salesperson would say, how many items? I'd say five. I'd go into the dressing room. I'd put on those sweaters, and I'd summon my powers of invisibility. I'd walk out, leaving her to wonder why there's a tag hanging from the door that says five and no person inside. And John Hodgman says, uh, so you'd become a thief pretty quickly. Woman, immediately, until I had all the sweaters that I wanted, and then I would have to think of other things to do. <laughs> then there's a man uh, who suggests, you know, by itself, flight wouldn't really make you a superhero. He says, oh, I don't fight crime now, and people without superpowers do. Sure, in theory, yes, but, you know, I'm not, I mean, what can I do with this? Either one of those is, you know, you need the whole package. There's not much you can do with any one thing. I'd go to Paris, I suppose, John Hodgman. That's not being a superhero. Uh, man, well, maybe I could be a going-to-Paris man. That's sort of a superhero. Well, you know, the problem is, for me anyways, I don't really relate to superheroes. I love uh, superhero movies, watched one last night, but I, I don't relate to them. It's a good party question, which superpower would you want to have? Um, but it's really hard to get into the psychology of that. What I relate to in all these stories is the, what I call the, the bystander. The confused bystander. These characters, don't dismiss them. They're a really important part of the story. The confused bystander. These are the ones that hear a ripping roar, you know, across the sky, or their cars get crushed, or they end up running through city streets with a rain of hail and rubble and, and, uh, and, and glass falling on their heads. Um, the bystander. There's not much glory in that, but you can't really have the superhero story without the bystander, right? They have a critical role in, in any superhero story. Uh, the bystander is there uh, to demonstrate what it's like to respond to the superhero. The idea is that as the superhero does her thing, the bystander in the story is moving through this process of, of, of transformation. They're going from unbelief to belief. Moving from unbelief to belief. Now, I want to begin with you a conversation over these next four weeks that are about hope. And I want to talk to you about the hero of our hope and the assumption behind this series. There's actually three of them. The first is that Jesus is, is the hero. He's the hero. The second is that we only know Jesus if we know him in the context of the whole story. Uh, you know how superheroes oftentimes have origin stories? You just go watch one movie. Uh, you have a lot of questions because you don't understand, you haven't seen maybe the other movies or read the comic books. Well, a lot of us come to Jesus and we don't really get the whole story arc of the Bible. So we can't really make sense of him. So if you want to understand who Jesus is, you have to get the whole arc. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks, we're going to just walk through that arc one Sunday at a time. That's why we're beginning with creation today. Next Sunday, it'll be redemption. Following that, it'll be mission. Uh, and then, then we'll do glorification. We'll just capture the whole story. And I think you'll understand Jesus better, and I think you'll understand your hope and even experience it more deeply in your life. Because that's, that's the goal. That's the third assumption of this series is that hope is the goal. And remember our definition of hope here. It's taking action today on the basis of God's promises for tomorrow. It's not wishful thinking. It's taking action today on the basis of God's promises for tomorrow. That's what we're after 
Um, so let's open up our Bible. We're going to see Jesus as the hero today of creation. We see Jesus as our creator. He's our maker. He's made us in love. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you're opening up the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 956. This is a song about Jesus, and in a moment we'll read it together. Um, as we read it, though, I want to ask you to think about this question. What is his superpower? If Jesus is a superhero, what is his superpower? Okay, if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read together Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. That's two paragraphs there. The first paragraph is a song, we think. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. It's about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. He is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. Literally, the unseen God. That's verse 15. If you're of a certain age, you might remember, as I do, that the Soviets had a museum of atheism, Museum of Unbelief, and in that was an exhibit about the cosmonauts who the Soviets claimed had proved there was no God because these astronauts, as we would call them, had blasted up into the heavens and looked through their little porthole and seen no God. There you go. Apparently, the Soviets weren't fans of C.S. Lewis and hadn't read what he says in Surprised by Joy, that reasoning that way would be about like uh, Hamlet saying there is no Shakespeare just because I went up into the attic of the Globe Theater and didn't find him there. Well, it's kind of a category failure. Uh, Shakespeare is the author and creator of Hamlet, and if Hamlet would be to know Shakespeare, it would only happen if Hamlet wrote himself into the story as a character in the play and came up to Hamlet and introduced him and said, I'm your maker. But that, in effect, is what the gospel teaches us God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is a unique claim that the creator, think about it, I know you've heard it before, but just think about it again. The creator of time and space entered into 
his creation as a creature. It's mind-bending. There is no other religion in the world, there's no other system of belief that makes this claim. It's entirely unique. Jesus is our superhero. The creator has become a creature. I want to reflect with you about that for a few minutes and ask three questions. How is it that the creator could be a hero, first of all? Secondly, what would his superpower be if we took this passage seriously? And thirdly, what would it mean for us to be a bystander? So let's go. First, how is the creator a hero? My answer is, he enters into creation for this purpose, to reboot it, to begin a new creation right inside the old. Now, this is good news. If you want to see that, I'm just very quickly uh, skate over the surface of this incredibly rich song. That first paragraph in your Bible might be helpful to keep it open to Colossians 1 15. There are actually three sections to the song. There are two stanzas, and then there's a bridge in the middle. The first stanza is all about Jesus at creation, the Son of God, eternal Son of God the creator. And then the second stanza is all about Jesus coming out of the resurrection, the new creation. Jesus, the author of the first creation. Jesus, the author of the new creation. And then the center section uh, is about, it's kind of this bridge, is about Jesus supreme. If you want to think about it in architectural terms, the structure of the song looks a little bit like a Roman arch or maybe even like one of these windows. On one side, you have the doctrine of creation. On the other side, you have the doctrine of new creation, what the maker continues to do. And then you have a kind of a keystone. If you look at the top stone, it's always this keystone that actually holds the whole structure together. Jesus supreme at the center. And there we read uh, at, the, at the apex of the structure of this, that he, uh, in him, verse 17, all things hold together. That's the center of the passage. In him, Jesus the keystone, in him, all things hold together, or literally, they cohere. If you want to think of this in cosmic terms, just uh, imagine a space capsule hurtling uh, towards this imperiled blue planet from infinity beyond, uh, coming towards us, sending off these contrails. One steam plume says, I am the creator. The other steam plume says, I am the, the new creator. And then this meteorite hits, uh, makes a huge pockmark, sinks deep into the planet, and shock waves and concentric circles fan out and begin to reorder the broken and fallen creation. That's the picture that we get in this song. And the point is that God loves what he makes and he commits himself to remake it. A friend of mine looked in the mirror the other day. She told me, she said, I looked in the mirror and I said, that's disgusting. <laughs> you know what? And I know what that's like, but you, we should never say that. Why? Because God made you. God made, God made you. And God don't make junk. And God don't throw away what he makes either, ever. He follows it to renew it and to remake it, and, and, and he pursues it. This is the teaching of the new creation. This theology runs all the way through the Bible. I remember the first time I discovered, I think it was in grad school, and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't think I've really understood how the Bible hangs together, but it hangs together in large measure on this teaching, the new creation. It's there right from the very beginning. Genesis 1 was written at some point in history. The world was already fallen, so people needed to know that there was a creator who sees that it is good, and that's the refrain. He saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. That gives you hope right there. And then when God's people 
people lost hope uh, in, during the monarchy. They were in exile in Babylon, and God sends a prophet, Isaiah, uh, who in Isaiah 65 says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Believe me, I am not done with this place. I'm not giving up on this place. And also in the middle of the story, we have the Apostle Paul in the midst of relational stress and strain who says to his readers in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God is remaking that person. And at the end of the story, under Roman oppression, John receives a vision from the Lord uh, that's dramatic and hard to understand, but where it goes is towards the new creation. He says, then I saw, this is the end of the story, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. And here's Jesus saying, see, I make all things new. By the way, even Jesus said, and I just said it to you earlier, after you read the thing, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word never will. This heaven and this earth will be completely renewed. And God's faithful word cuts all the way through the story from beginning to end. He's there at the beginning, he's there at the end, and he's with us in the middle to recreate. So it's bad theology to think that my life is so messed up now, I've kind of gotten beyond his reach or his interest it's bad theology to think someday God's just so fed up with this world, he's just going to crumple it up and throw it into the trash heap of history and say, oh, well, that was an interesting experience and sort of destroy the world with fire. Some people think that. It's bad theology to think what God is trying to do is snatch disembodied souls out of this world and bring it to some pure ethereal place of infinity called heaven. That is not the story of the Bible. That's, not, that's why we don't pray, uh, may your will be done in heaven as it should be done on earth. It's may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because the new creation is coming this way. It's coming towards us. So how is the creator a hero? Well, it's because he, it, it, by entering it and, and starting over in the middle of it, rebooting. The second question is, well, what then is his superpower? I mean, how would he do it? My answer after reading this text, and this is new this week, I wouldn't have said this to you last week, but I studied this passage carefully, and I think God's superpower, Jesus' superpower, is his humanity. It's uh, not about um, human beings, but it's about being human. This is a surprise, because I might have liked to have said that Jesus' superpower is changing water into wine. That sounds pretty convenient and uh, inexpensive, but... But that is not his main superpower. It's actually being human. In this passage, the creator can't do anything as the creator. But what the creator does do, the creator does as a human. That's how the song begins. Verse 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God. That language of image is the way that Jewish people talked about humanity. All the way back to Genesis 1.26. God makes humans. Let us make man in our image, it says. An image is, something, is basically just someone that reflects the nature and character of God. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's saying he's the perfect human being. That's his superpower. He perfectly reflects the character and nature of the God. So the world, world, world can see God through his humanity. So, and again, just if you want to look at the two halves of this, of this song, they both begin with firstborn. Verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. doesn't mean he's the first human who is born. He's, he means he's preeminent among all humans who are born. Firstborn of all the creation. And then the next, the, the, the second stanza, the new creation, begins with the resurrection. We see this in, in 18b. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he may come have first place in everything. Notice that the second thing, what he's actually doing is recreating humanity. Did you see? He's the head of the body. What's the song saying? 
new humanity with Jesus as the head and this corporate entity of his followers, he calls the body. He's creating a new cosmos by creating a new humanity inside of it. Man, this is interesting. That's his superpower. And if you want to know why would that be a superpower, just like being a human being, why would that be a superpower since everybody else seems to be a human being? You have to go back to the problem in Gotham. The very beginning, Genesis 1 through 3 describes the problem in our world uh, this way. It's a problem with a missing center. Remember, in the center of creation, there's a garden. And in the center of garden, there's a tree. And at that tree, there was meant to be a cosmic battle between human beings and the forces of evil. And you know what? What we were supposed to do there as human beings was to show that uh, who God was. As in both of these paragraphs, the language in him and through him and for him is repeated. And that's what we got wrong in the Garden of Eden. We thought that this whole thing, the whole world and paradise was really about living in myself, through myself, and for myself. We blew it back then. And as a result of that, the universe lost its center. It was supposed to be centered around God's image bearers who would show all the rest of the world that he's good. But once that happens, if you read Genesis 1 through 3 uh, closely, you realize there are three disruptions that follow. There's a disruption that's spiritual. We lose relationship with God. There's a disruption that's social. We lose relationship with one another. Remember how Adam and Eve, they had been naked and unashamed, and now all of a sudden, what are they? They're hiding from each other and accusing one another. Social disruption. And then the third dimension is a disruption between us and the environment, or the natural order. The thorns and the thistles grow up. And so this is the story. Therefore, what the, the whole of creation yearns for is one human being who would bring restoration to all. And it happens in Jesus Christ. Died on the cross, his blood, risen from the dead, his resurrection, reconciles all of creation to one human being, one superhero for all of the rest. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, all of creation right now is groaning, waiting for the birth of the sons of God. What he means is all of us who are under the curse of death, some of whom are buried under the ground. We'll talk about those who have deceased. Someday, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those graves will open up and we will all come to full participation in the resurrection life of Jesus. And until that time, we're all groaning. Why? Because the center is not there. And Tim Keller uses this illustration of a grandfather clock, which is, you know, it's highly ordered and functions well when all the gears are in their place. But if you take that one gear at the drive, as small as it might be, and you pull it out or it falls out and drops to the bottom of the box, the whole clock is disordered. And that's really the teaching of the Bible, that the reason the whole universe is so chaotic right now is because God's image bearers are not in the center. Jesus is the center. In him, all things hold uh, together. Isaiah talks about the environmental devastation that that follows from our rebellion in chapter 24. This is kind of interesting to read. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together with the earth. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. I don't have time to read you all of the places in the Old Testament and the New that reflect the devastation uh, ecologically that follows from not worshiping God and putting him first in this creation. 
George Whitfield, one, uh, one of the great preachers of the uh, Great Awakening in the 18th century, he said this in a sermon. Do you know why the wild animals shriek at you and dogs growl at you and snakes hiss at you and run away when you get close to them? Listen to this. They know you had a quarrel with their master. The animals are closer to God than you. That's true. We're in God's image, not them. And we have a quarrel with their master. And so we're not at peace with the animal kingdom. That's, what, that's the way George Whitfield said. So his humanity and restoring of humanity restores the center, brings things back into equilibrium and order. The point here is that God remakes us through one perfect human being. Now the third and final question is, what does it mean for the bystander? For the confused crowds and masses where I see myself. And I think the, the good news of this passage is that we will become more human as we look to Jesus. We will become more fully ourselves in Christ. I like what Hugh Halter said last week when he said, Jesus didn't come to make us more religious. Quite the opposite. Jesus came to make us more human. This week I was in someone's office and I saw on her desk a sign that said, Anxiety Girl. Uh, anxiety Girl, able to jump to the worst conclusion in a single bound. <laughs> and I was like, that's me. I am Anxiety Girl for sure. And you know, the problem, the reason why so many of us feel like we are Anxiety Girl is because we have mistook our role. We, we forgot that we're just the bystander and we think that we're the superheroine. And if you think you're the superhero, then you have to try to order and control everything yourself. And the result of that will be anxiety. Your life won't hold together. But when we can move Jesus into the center and know that we have a superhero, then we can be a bystander. So then what's the bystander to do? How do we participate in this? Well, I want to suggest that you move from unbelief to belief. That's what the bystander does. You move from unbelief to belief in every area of your life. My friend Caesar Kalinowski defines discipleship as, as moving from unbelief to belief, not once, one and done, saved and now I'm going to heaven. No, as a lifestyle, moving from unbelief to belief in every area of your life. Remember the Apostle Paul says the reason Jesus was risen from the dead was so that he could become first place in everything. And that means in everyone, and that means in every part of everyone. He literally means everything. All happens eight times in this passage. So how do we do that? Not by trying to bring order to our lives, but allowing the superhero to order our lives. We do it through the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell you to do this and do that. The, the gospel tells you what you can do because of what he has done. So that's why Paul puts in the center of this second paragraph, uh, faith, the word faith in the gospel. Faith is another word for belief. And uh, this second paragraph tells us the implications for the bystanders of what the superhero has done for us. He's, and there are two parts of this. First is to be established in faith, and then to remain steadfast in faith. To be established in faith is to say yes to Jesus for the first time. That's to believe the gospel and allow God to reconcile you to himself through Jesus Christ. When you do that, you look in the mirror very differently. You no longer look in your mirror and say, that's disgusting or pathetic or not enough hair or whatever you, you want to say, or too big a belly. What you look is you say, holy, the pulse of these words, holy, blameless, irreproachable. That's who you are in God's sight. When you say yes to Jesus and believe that he is your superhero, then you have eternal life. You're a Christian at that point, some people say. 
On the other hand, Paul is not satisfied to leave it there. He's admonishing these Colossians to remain steadfast in faith, not just to be established there, but to continue to live there. It's important that you and I take seriously unbelief, and Hugh Halter said that last week also. There are a lot of good reasons for our unbelief, and it's not just them out there, it's us in here. We have, I have a ton of unbelief in my life, and so what I'm trying to do is, in every area of my life, move from unbelief to belief. Why does the cashmere woman want to steal? Well, I don't know. But maybe there's an unbelief issue there. Maybe she doesn't believe she's accepted without a cashmere sweater. But the good news of the gospel says she's absolutely accepted. Why does Paris man feel he has to escape his humdrum ordinary life in which it's not really worth it to engage the social injustice of his community? But we don't really know why it is. I mean, Paris is a great place to visit, but it may also be he's not dealing with the gospel in his life that says, you're completely loved. You're an agent of change in the world. You are safe in my love so you can take risks with that job that bores you to death right here in your own town. The point is that God remakes the world as he remakes every area of our humanity. We, can, we have been reconciled spiritually, socially, and environmentally, so now we get to live out of that reconciliation. Caesar Kalinowski writes, God is restoring our relationships, our marriages, our families, our worldview, our work ethic, our sexuality, our identity, and every part of who we are back to the way he desires them to be. And that only happens when the gospel gets in and changes and heals our hearts, displacing the lies that we have believed about God and ourselves. Jesus is our maker. He made you in love. And he remakes you in love. There's one point where Lois Lane asks Superman, she says, what's the S stand for? Looking puzzled, he replies, oh, it's, it's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Isn't that interesting? What superpower would you choose? Maybe all you need to find and share hope is to be who you already are in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we celebrate you. We sing songs about you. We are in you as fully authentic human beings. Help us to receive the fullness of your humanity in the way that we live with God, with one another, and within this rich and beautiful creation. We pray that we'll do it in you and through you and for you. Amen. Amen.